All right, so last week we uh, tried to get the ship off the ground. You know, we tried to get a little bit of lift off on this new topic of justice. I was talking to a couple uh, pastors about Exodus, and they were asking us about our teaching method. And, you know, we explain, I would tell them about the interactive part, and you can see their eyes kind of get, like, really wild when they hear it at first because they think, this is, this is weird. And they always have the same question. I've talked to a number of people, and the question always comes back the same way. How is it that if you let anybody interrupt what you're going to say or challenge it, that you can ever get to the truth? And it was weird because implicit in the question, there's this assumption that somehow if I stand up here that I have the truth and I have to deliver it to you, and if you would just shut up, then you would get it, right? And what's missing in that assumption, I think, is number one, something that we've said before in other series, and Jeremy is fond of reminding us that Jesus is the truth. And that even our understanding is inferior to who he is. Second of all, that I don't have the truth. And if all of you would just be quiet, I could not deliver it. In fact, sometimes I'll tell you in humility what I've learned is in the wrestling in this room, the truth comes out even more. Because I believe strongly that the Holy Spirit speaks through every single person and it shapes the discussion. There are many times when I've presented a topic that there's been something I've studied and discarded and said, ah, I don't know if I really want to present that. And as it gets challenged in this room, I realize that's exactly what we need to be talking about. And if it wasn't for that challenge, then we wouldn't have even gotten to that point. Last week, what happened was a very simple thing. I was trying to make a point that I thought was fairly well accepted, that because we're created in the image of God, we have dignity and worth. I thought, that's a given, right? We just move on. And there was a serious challenge to that from people because they thought, I don't know how that necessarily flows. So, with a grin on my face, I had to go read two more books this week, you know, <laughs> that I didn't plan on really going into. But that's good because, again, the reason we do this differently is because so many times in our lives we have skipped over right from point one to point two without stopping. You were right to stop us. So we're going to go there tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about the image of God and why it relates to justice. Because our series is, by the way, on justice. It's not about the image of God, but we're kind of taking a little detour there because it seems like we have to. Let's move forward a little bit. You guys remember why we're going to study justice. I want to justify the time we're going to spend here. One, if you remember, it's because you kind of asked for it on your surveys. That's number one reason. Number two, we've cited some verses from the scripture about God and his love for justice. I mean, one of them, clearly, talking about how much God loves justice, Isaiah 61.8, for I, the Lord, love justice. And Psalm 37.28, for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. So he loves people who are just. Psalm 103.6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Notice righteousness and justice. There's a little bit of a parallel. In the Hebrew scriptures, righteousness seems to qualify justice. It's a specific type of justice. We're going to look at that. And finally, I think the third one proved itself last week. Many of us have a misconception of what justice involves and how important it is to the Lord for us to do justice. Here was the definition of justice that was put up by Nicholas Wolsterstorff, who's a evangelical philosopher. He said that justice is present among persons, groups, or institutions when their rights, their legitimate claims are honored. I want you to look at that statement for a second. Justice is there when, let's say, people, people's rights, their legitimate claims are honored. The problem for us is 
Who gets to determine their rights? Who gets to determine what's legitimate? And that's actually why we have to spend some time looking at the image of God. Because the point I'm going to kind of end with is if you take away the image of God and what it gives to us, the dignity and the worth that it gives to us, then kind of all bets are off. Then society gets to determine what legitimate rights are, what legitimate claims are. And there are people who believe that. In fact, there's lots of people who believe that. For the last two or three hundred years, that has been becoming the predominant view, not among Christians, but in most world philosophies outside of the church, that it's totally legitimate for us to define what rights are independent of any biblical basis. Last week, some of us talked about that afterwards. Yeah, the discussion kept going even after last week's discussion, it kept going even afterwards. As we talked about some of the modern philosophers that started to talk about, well, the modern philosophers who were saying, what is the source of all these rights? And if you start to see there's some pretty scary outcomes. So that's what we're looking for. How do you determine worth and dignity? So here's the steps that I think we can walk through. Step one, because we are all created in the image of God, something is going to flow. So if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter one. And if you don't, we can accommodate you. We're in verse 26. This is the creation account. You know there's two of them. There's one in chapter 1, and there's another one that's more focused just on mankind in chapter 2. We're focused on the initial one, and God is about to create male and female humankind. And here's what we read in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. You stop there, some interesting things to point out in the beginning of this. God said, let us. You could stop there. Many people point that even in the first chapter of Genesis, God is giving clues to a very special kind of creation. First, that he, God, is plural here. This by itself would not give you a clue that God is triune. But if you look at the earlier part of Genesis, God is creating, but there is not this statement of let us, and it's a very deliberate use, let us create, implying the plurality of God, which we now know through other sources, the triune nature of God. So all three parts of God's triune nature come together to create man in our image. And there's those words, in our image, in our likeness. So we have a clue right from the beginning that God is doing something kind of different. If you look back at the creation of the other creatures, they're created in their own kind. There's not this special statement, first, that identifies the plurality of God, and second, that states that Mankind, humankind, is being created in the image, in the likeness of God. So let's read through this. In the image of God, in the likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. So there's a ruling given along with this image giving. Because of this image giving, you're going to rule. There's dominion that mankind has over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It emphasizes the point. It's there again. 
God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. There it is, the concept of dominion again. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. This creation account gives us a very special place as humankind. Now, here's where the struggle comes in. What is the image? What does it give to us? How does it give us that specific worth? Over the centuries, people have struggled. But here's point number two that builds on top of that. Because we were created in the image of God, each of us has been gifted with dignity and worth by the Creator. How do we get to that point? Anyone want to jump in from your own experience or your own knowledge? How does being created in the image of God give us worth and dignity that's different and give everybody the same worth and dignity? How do we get there? Anyone? I just kind of had a question that you sort of touched upon, but like if it made males and females both in the likeness of God and His image and that we all have the same equal worth and value because we're created in the image of God, female and male. Right, there's a specific statement of equality that's made there. But then the rest of the Bible is like, well, depending on how you read it, history, twist it, how I've heard it, it's like women must submit to men, women cannot teach to men, you cannot teach to a mixed room of men and women, so that's not equal. Okay, there's a couple things that I want to bring up that we're not going to go into. <laughs> One of the things we're not going to go into is the equality or the roles, let's call it, of men and women in the church. In fact, we've slated that as one of the talks we want to do, and I'm trying to get Dr. Sarah Sumner to come in and do it for us, okay? Regardless of how you feel about what a woman's role is, our intrinsic value as a human being is equal to the intrinsic value of a human being of a man. Yeah, so if I would say it right, regardless of whether you're egalitarian, or complementarian in your view about the role of women and men. And by the way, that would only be limited probably to ministry in the family. For example, the Bible is very clear that women can rule like the Queen of Sheba, Queen Esther. There's like no negative connotations associated with those at all. So it would be, if at all, in the context of church and family. But we're not going to go into it. The fact that we have equal worth and dignity and we're equally created in the image of God does not mean that we'll have the same roles. It does not mean that God will treat all people the same. Like, for example, he will punish some people. He will not punish others. That doesn't take away their equal dignity, value to God. Here we're talking about does a human being have worth and value apart from all other creation? And does everybody have that that's a human being? And I think the answer is yes, but we still need to get to why. How do we get to that? What is it that the image of God gives us that gives us that worth, that dignity? Yeah. Well, first of all, Creation kind of culminates in, in the creation of humankind and kind of revolves around it, as well as he entrusts humans to care for everything else he made. So in that sense, he's putting worth in us, that he would entrust us with that. Absolutely. It is the culmination of creation. Some people even point out in the detail that God said everything was good until he creates humankind and says it's very good. That just may be the story writing. But it also has to do, I mean, if we look specifically at it, I think there is a clue that everything comes to a point, and then he says, there's something that still needs to be created. And there is a distinction between humankind and all other creation, and it is this image of God. In chapter 2, by the way, we see the same type of thing when God breathes into Adam created from the dust. 
That's a specific thing that happens too that's distinct from any other creation. When it says we're created in the image of God, does that mean we resemble God physically? It actually probably, most likely, and I'm not going to say that for certain because no one's seen God, but the reason that most people, including me, believe that that's not what it means is because God is spirit. So at least in our physical manifestations, we may have some resemblance to him in terms of the fact that our bodies are, are complete, they're one, something like that. There's been a debate for 2,000 years. Do we have two parts? Is it soul and body? Is it three? Is it soul, body, and spirit? Some people think it's more. Is it mind, soul? I'm, it, it could be all of those things. But what's clear is, no matter what view you take, we as humans are different in that respect. We have the Spirit of God breathed into us. We have this image of God in the immaterial senses. And what are those? Here's some clues. This concept's been debated for a long time. And they've basically divided into two camps. Both of them kind of complement one another. They're not so opposed to one another. The Imago Dei is the Latin term for the image of God. So that theory, some people believe, is expressed in our substance. Thomas Aquinas was probably most famous for advancing this. That the thing that the image of God gave us was we were able to do things. That we were set apart because we could reason. Because we were rational. Because we could create, for example. Because we could compose. Because we had all this reason capacity. That intellect, Aquinas said, was what set us apart from every other creation. That was what the image of God, it was something in us. It was a function, a substance that we were given. There's a whole other camp that goes, no, it's a relationship. The image of God gives us a right to have a relationship between our spirit and God. No other creature that's created gets to have that connection to God except us. The people who champion that view are like Luther, Calvin, even in this century, Karl Barth, actually 20th century. Karl Barth really took that step even further, trying to examine what it means to have this relational image of God. Just so you know that this isn't just our views, I went looking to see what did the Jews write about the image of God. They had the same thing. They took very seriously that image, that selim in Hebrew. And they would say that created in the image of God, to be birthed in the image of God, B'Tselem Elohim, was very high in most of their view of what made people distinct from all the other creation that there was. So it isn't just our concept. From the beginning, even to this day, people who look back, even in the Jewish tradition, look back at the Torah, are trying to understand, what does it mean? Look, if you want to go further on this, and I'll tell you that I read the first probably 70 or 80 pages of this. So if you want to go further, you can. I would recommend this book, Created in God's Image. Anthony Hokema is, or Huekema, I can never say his name right. He's actually from, he's from the Netherlands. Spent his time here in the United States. He's written a number of books that we've cited, actually, because he's written on a broad number of topics. But he wrote this book, and I read through it, and it was, it was really insightful into all the different views all the way dating back to the early fathers through Aquinas and Luther, but also just examining the language and trying to understand how does this connect. The short part of it, for you guys who just want to zoom forward a little bit, is this. God did a very special thing by giving each of us this image. We reflect it. There's even debate among people, do we still reflect it? 
After the fall, and most people say absolutely. In fact, there's evidence in James and other places in the New Testament that we still have the image of God. Here's evidence right here. In Genesis, still, shortly after the fall, in fact, if you want the context for this verse, God is instructing Noah after the flood about the new rules that apply to the earth. If you flip over to Genesis chapter 9, he starts to give some of these new rules that are going to apply. Bear in mind, it seems like he's going to give them a few rules. Later on, the people of Israel are going to receive a much larger set of rules. But for now, these are some of the rules, just so that we can read some scripture tonight. Genesis chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on the birds of the sky and everything that creeps on the ground. And all the fish of the sea, into your hands they are given. Here's another dominion passage. And you're going to hear me use the word dominion a lot because it's very important to our concepts of justice. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give you all as I gave the green plants. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. Some of your translations may say I will make an accounting for your lifeblood from every beast. And from every man... And from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So I put up here just that last verse. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. Among those short rules that he gives to Noah is a rule about capital punishment. The justification for why someone can take a life if he takes a life is because that person's made in the image of God. You cannot kill another person. Why? Because they have value. They have worth to the Father. Why? Because they were made in the image of God. God attaches that as one of the few rules that come after the flood. And he's trying to remind people, you are created in the image of God. You cannot just go around killing anybody you want. I'm the Lord. Now, some of you are already struggling going, but didn't God just wipe out the earth? Yes, that comes as part of our other series we're not doing tonight, right? What about all those other things where God seems to act in a different way? We'll talk about that. But he's giving instructions about the value of life is based on the fact that you're created in the image of God. Notice he doesn't try to come up with some other humanitarian issue like, hey, don't kill other people because that's not right, or that's not fair, that's not just, or they have a right to live. It's because they're created in the image of God. That's where we get our worth. That's where we get our right to live. If you flip over to Psalms, which you don't have to, but I've got it right here, Psalm 8. Here we sing this song a lot. You might recognize the opening lines of this psalm. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy of the revengeful cease. When I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Thou hast made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and majesty. Here, David is asking this great question. When he looks at all the things that God creates, he says, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
you have made him a little lower than God. If you have an NIV, it might say a little lower than the angels or heavenly beings. It's because the Hebrew word there is Elohim, which is most often translated as God. Uh, it can be translated as angels. It can be translated as heavenly beings. But in this context, it seems like the right translation, and most other translations pick it up, is you have made him a little lower than God. Again, reflective of that image, that we're just somehow a piece, a, a part, a, a reflection, an image, whatever it means, it's very special. That's why God is mindful of man. And you crown him with glory and majesty. And then, going on in verse 6, he says, you make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you put all things under his feet. Here's another dominion passage. All sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There seems to be this pattern, if you haven't picked up on it. God has created mankind, humankind, male and female, in the image of God, and put them to rule over all the things in the earth. And there's an order in there. And that's going to become important, like I said later, when we talk about dominion more. But as even David picks up, it creates a special thing. And while he doesn't directly use the words, the image, he's, he's basically paralleling Genesis 1, 26-28 in his psalm. So going back to my statement, because we are all created in the image of God, each of us has been gifted with dignity and worth by the Creator. Anyone want to take that on? I think in the Genesis passage, at least to the degree that it justifies that the image of God means human lives are equal to each other from God's perspective, at the very least. Because, I mean, it doesn't say, well, if you kill a man and he's an evil person, or if you kill a man and he's short, or if you kill a man and you don't like him, you're like, if you kill a man, you should be killed by men. Like, it's unacceptable because all men are created in the image of God. It's a very curious thing because it doesn't have all the exceptions that we are later are going to see. In fact, that's why I said when God later gives a more detailed description of the law, especially as we know in the Mosaic law, there's, you know, there's defenses and there's this. And, and in this more simplified way, it's like just you can't kill anybody because they're created in the image of God. And he doesn't even say like unless they're self-defense or if it was justifiable. He just says they're created in the image of God. They're special. But if you do, you're supposed to be murdered. So you lose your value once you take someone else's life. No, I don't think that's the point. And I think we have to keep those separately. Like, we don't lose our value. We may be punished. We may die. We may have suffer consequences. Because then we'd be elevating the image of God to basically the, the, the like it equates with a salvation or a perfection that we attain. So you have the image of God. Therefore, God could never touch you. That's clearly not true. That would be probably reading too much into what the image of God is. That would be making the image of God like being God or some kind, or being perfect, or you wouldn't need anything else. No salvation, no obedience, no nothing. Just, hey, I'm in the image of God. I'm untouchable. That's, that's reading too much. Morgan? There's also an as far as the idea of capital punishment. I learned in class once that was, I thought was really intriguing that I hadn't thought of, is the fact that in, in ancient society, they didn't have prisons. You know, I mean, what we have now didn't come about for thousands of years. And so when someone commits a very serious crime, what do you do with them? You know, and so it kind of, at least for me, it helped me to get my mind around 
God saying, yes, this is punishable by death and only death. So just, I, I think that can help frame that idea of, of capital punishment. That, of course, assumes that you're a person who's troubled by capital punishment, right? Yeah, because yeah. I mean, some people just like, even in the Christian traditions, there's been this tension about what you do with it, right? So that's a good way to think about it for people who are troubled by it. Anyone else? I mean, are, is there still a gap between these two? Between we're creating the image of God that gives us worth and dignity. In a moment, you'll see that if, if we don't make that connection, then none of the things that God asks us to do make any sense. The only thing I think is just we have to be careful, like, well, what, what exactly is meant by worth and dignity? And, like, I mean, even you made the point in the beginning saying legitimate rights or claims and determining that. And I don't know how all of those different words and concepts are connected. Like, the, the dignity, dignity and worth that everybody has because of this image of God, that's nice, but I don't see what it has to do with justice. That's the next step that I'm not sure. Like. Okay. Look, throughout the ages, people have debated, what is the image of God? Is it that we have the ability to be moral? Is it that we have the ability to have free choice? Is it that we have the ability to create and to compose and to be artistic, to have intellect, to have reason, to rationalize all things, by the way, that the other created creatures cannot do? But I'd like to suggest an alternate. Instead of always comparing ourselves to the other creatures, maybe we should compare ourselves to Christ. Because we know that Christ is the perfect image of God. Remember when he was asked, Lord, Show us the Father and we'll believe. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Colossians, we read that he is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is not, he doesn't just have the image of God the way we have. He is the perfect image. In fact, the way it's written is almost like he's the imprint. The Greek implies he's like the carbon copy. He's the reverse image. And we are becoming more and more remade through the process of sanctification into that image. So in the New Testament, when you encounter people talking about the image of God, it's still there. We still have it. In fact, that text in Genesis shows that after the fall, it's still there. It may be tarnished. It may be changed. It may be tainted by sin. But in the New Testament, that concept is picked up again in Hebrews, it's picked up in 1 Corinthians, it's picked up in James, it's picked up in a number of places where in Colossians, where we are becoming more and more like the image of Christ, which is what? Like the image of God, because Christ reflects God. He's the image of God. So we're becoming more and more like that image again. Someday we, we will be made fully back into what that image was intended to be before the fall. So we're on our way back. So this concept is not a small one. In other words, we could spend five weeks talking about it. People spent centuries talking about it. For our purposes, I just want to make sure we can make this leap. And if we can, let me move to the third point, because now we can introduce what is justice. Here's my summation. Because we're made in the image of God, and each of us has been gifted with dignity and worth by the Creator, God's commandments regarding justice take into account this dignity and worth and create a framework for protecting it. That's what my definition of justice is going to be. I'm kind of making up my own there to try to bring into a point how these link together. When we look at justice sometimes, we're thinking like, what is just? We're starting with that framework, like as if it was an independent thing that was out there somewhere. Like, what is justice? What is justice at all? And if we understand that we're special and have this worth because of the image of God in us, 
that all of God's commandments about justice flow from his nature, the same nature that gave us the image, the same nature that means that he's going to set up certain rules, not because he's like, oh, this is what justice is and this is what you should do. It's actually a different way. Because you have this worth and this dignity in you, there are certain ways that you need to live and act amongst each other so that you protect the dignity and the worth in those who are around you. That's what God's rules about justice are. Because when we start to read more about justice, I'm going to preview where we're going in a couple of weeks. You're going to hear some things that when I read them, you go, how is that fair? But see, fair is my word. Fair is what I think justice should be. I've redefined God's justice into a human word like fair. How is that equal? How is that right? How is that giving somebody incentive? But that's my definition of what justice is. My tainted, sinful, post-fall understanding of justice. God's understanding may be totally different. In fact, not maybe. Probably very likely is totally different than that. Justice is designed to protect and to uphold and to affirm that dignity and worth that you have in you. We may see in the coming weeks, for example, when God says, every so often I want you to give the land back that you now own to the person who owned it way before you. And most of us would go, what? What do you mean just give it back? Like, what kind of God does that? I bought it. It's mine. How is that fair that I would just give it back to somebody? And God will say, because I gave you dignity and worth that was to be taken from the land and earned, to earn your way, to have dominion. This is a rule I'm establishing to protect that dignity and worth in people, and you should abide by it. It's just a preview of where those things are going to go. But you'll see that's why I've defined justice in this way, as God's commandments that take into account the dignity and worth and are designed specifically to protect it and affirm it in us. So here's the question. What's the alternative to an image-centric view? If we don't believe this, which there's a lot of people who don't believe this, what's the alternative view? If we say, we can come up with a society where people have rights on their own because of their own views, values, whatever they are, has nothing to do with creating an image God. That's just a bunch of nonsense. It's in a Bible somewhere. Why should that govern society? That's a fair view. You're going to encounter that view. Peter Singer is a philosopher, ethicist, if you can call him an ethicist, right? He's a thinker at Princeton. And he believes that, you know, when you look at the dignity of human beings, he's advocated not just that you can kill, like in abortion settings, but he's advocating infanticide. Like you could kill children, like small children, up to what age? Maybe like five or six? Because if you find out, for example, that you have a child and they have a birth defect of some kind, or they have some sort of infirmity that's going to prevent them from having a full life. Again, who determines what a full life is? It would just be better to just end their life because you're doing them a favor. You're helping them out. It's better for everybody. It's better for society, for sure. They don't have to care for these people. It's better for them. They don't have to suffer. And besides, what is their life worth? Now, that might be a little bit of an extreme value to say, okay, let's pick on him because he's kind of an extreme voice in the debate, but he's not crazy. 
If you look at the way he sets up the reasons, they all kind of make sense. One just leads to the other. And there's nothing that stops it and says, no, you know what, that's going too far. Why? Why is it going too far? So because people have intrinsic value and worth. Why? Why do they have intrinsic value and worth? What's the worth of a suffering child? Like, wouldn't it be better to put them out of their misery? How about at the other end of life, for example? People will say, like, we have old people that don't even remember who they are. We have people who are suffering, like maybe we shouldn't have that. Wouldn't it be the humane thing to just end their life? I mean, they don't really have a life, right? They have no more dignity in their life, right? Because they can't remember who they are, because they're maybe in pain or they're lost or they're lonely or they wake up every day and they're sad. They don't know where they are and they have nobody and nobody wants to take care of them and they're living in some home somewhere in the worst of conditions. Wouldn't it be better to just end their life? Why wouldn't we? If you don't believe that each person has this dignity and this worth given to them by the image of God. If you don't believe in that view, then you very quickly come to the conclusion and go, yeah, you just become very utilitarian. Like, it just doesn't make sense to have them around. Not for them and not for us. Now, I'm being a little bit extreme because not everybody who doesn't believe in the Bible suddenly wants to kill babies and kill old people. But if you look at the philosophers, the people who think the stuff through, that's exactly where it ends up. Most of the people in the middle just don't think about it. So if you ask the person on the street, like, do you believe in God? No. Go, so you want to kill babies? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I'm like, back off, you know? Because they haven't thought about it. But if they go sit in a class where somebody explains and go, look, there's no reason not to, right? They might come up with it and go, no, it's not right. It's not fair. It's, 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 that's, that's cruel. Go, why? Because ultimately, all of our human-made reasons kind of have a, they just keep progressing there. And if you want to look at like some of those philosophers, like you know, when you hear about somebody like Peter Singer, you think he must be like totally out there. Go, no, you read his stuff; it makes a lot of sense. Because there's no hard stop. There's no place where you say, "Uh-uh, we're starting from a given that people do have dignity and worth, no matter who they are, because they're created human." Etzem Elohim. How far are we able to take the dignity and worth? Because I mean, like you've been focusing on, and like I agree that person had a legitimate claim or right not to be killed by another person. But what else does this image of God provide a legitimate claim or right? I guess this might be something you're going into later, and that's final. Yeah, in the coming weeks, we're going to start to look at what those things mean, and you, I'm sure people will push back on some of the things. Yeah. Isn't like the ultimate like liberal, secular worldview, the whole idea that you can do anything that you want to do, and that's your right as long as it's not affecting or infringing upon the rights of others? If you kind of take on that view, it's like once a child is living and is outside the woman's body or whatever, per se, just to go on that example, it's a living being that now also has rights. And so I can't just take the life of someone who's already living because I can do anything I want to do as long as it doesn't infringe upon the rights of someone else. But see, the argument doesn't become about the rights of other people because ultimately that is a question that doesn't have an end. Like, well, who gave them the right? Yeah, but society could take it away, right? And that's exactly the, the thing. Like, we lived in a very enlightened 20th century, supposedly, where people had rights. But we ended up with, like, two world wars and a holocaust and a bunch of other things that happened in the midst of that. In states and societies where people are like, these people have rights and these people do not. But then people intervened, like, in World War II to end that type of practice. Or eventually slavery was abolished or things of that nature where people came together and agreed like I've had so many secular professors that are like 
look, if all these different cultures can kind of agree and they, they're not all Christians and not all of them have the same spirituality and some of them don't even believe in anything, but for some reason, humanity everywhere on the whole globe has sort of come up with the same ideas that you don't take life and that you don't, like there's just certain basic rules that everyone has kind of just followed and understood. We could say, well, that must be because from the fact that we're created in the image of God and it persists in all people and somewhere deep inside their conscience must just tell them that. But, I mean, how do you explain that to someone that doesn't believe in God? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a very strong point because I don't want to be heard as saying somebody if, that if you don't believe in God, you're an immoral person, which some people say, and I, I don't really believe. I'm not saying that, and I don't even know that I believe that. However, what I'm saying is the morality we create has no real absolute parameters. It can be changed because there is no fixed thing. And what's lacking a lot of times in our views is that in the last two or 300 years, we decided, you know what, we don't actually need a religious viewpoint of any kind, Christian or otherwise, to arrive at the equality of all people, the worth of all people, you know, all these kinds of things that like, almost like we take as our fundamental declaration of human rights, like people have all these rights, okay? The problem is every part of the world, there's people who don't believe that. And if you press us, even in our Western enlightened society down to the core, you're starting to see at the fringes where all the academics usually are, that they're making arguments that go, you know what? I don't even believe that these things are fixed. That there are instances where you can have infanticide or you can have euthanasia and all these things are better for society. It becomes utilitarian. Like what's the best thing? And what ends up happening in the end is you create whatever you want. Wes? Have we accepted that that's where it's going anyways? Oh, I think that's where it's going, for sure. The question is, should Christians accept, should, if you could see where it's going, right? You're going to say, yeah, I think this thing is moving in that direction. Leave room for God to do some amazing things. But even if it were to go that direction, keep going in that direction. The better question is, in the midst of that, though, do Christians just give up and go, hey, you know what, there's not much we can do? Or do we still say, yeah, but the worth of this one person that I can help is still they still bear the image of God and they deserve the dignity and worth. And even though the tide is totally against where this is going, how am I supposed to act? And that is ultimately where I want to take this, is in the, in the weeks that we're going to do, where we do the different types of justice that God sets up, there's the what is it and then how do we do it? And it may be very localized how we do it, because you're right, maybe it is going that direction we can't change. Let me uh, just move to this. Here's a practical implication of this dominion issue. If God really gave us dominion over these things, like I said, to have stewardship over the created order, to work, create, design, author, compose, cultivate, if we're supposed to have this kind of dominion and then people don't have it, doesn't that disturb the natural order of what God created us to do? There's a difference between justice and charity. Just to look at practically how these things play out. You know, we, in our minds, we might say, hey, justice for the poor, let's give them something to eat. Well, that may be charity for the poor. Justice for the poor might be given. Let's give them the means to have the dignity and worth and have dominion over something to work and to create and to provide as they were intended to do. Even our relief organizations in the church don't often think of that. They, some of them do. But a lot of them are thinking about how can we meet the immediate crisis, which is sometimes the most they can do. But ultimately, if we had our way, could we not think of ways to go beyond charity to real justice? There is a difference. Justice for the poor won't be just, here's a meal. It'll be, here's some land for you to work. Because that's the way it was intended to be. Much harder standard. Okay? Again, you go, well, I don't know, God. That's, yeah, but God's saying, I want to protect the dignity and worth of people. Yes, I want to provide for them. 
but I want them to also have the other thing. Okay, let me close with the different ones we're going to look at, just so you know where we're going. I noted three types of justice, commutative, procedural, and distributive. Like, how are systems supposed to be just? How are procedures supposed to be fair? And what do we as Christians do? It's going to be really easy to define these. There's a few verses that describe them. The harder part is going to be kind of flowing out of what Hester said. How do we stand up for just systems procedurally in a world that actually is kind of going the other way? And are we, the people in this room, able to do anything at all? So next week we get practical. Now that we've at least set up what the rules are supposed to be and why they're there, now we can actually get practical. How can you help make more procedural fairness, justice in this world? And commutative justice, exactly what it is, that fairness in agreements and exchanges. How can we do that? What's our role as Christians? That can be a tough one to answer because the temptation is going to be to say, let's just give up. It's the world is already too big. There's too many systems and I'm a small person. I cannot make a difference against this kind of thing. And I don't think that that's anywhere in the scripture. It says, okay, when the overwhelming weight is against you, just give up. All the bets are off about justice at that point. Let's leave it there and come back next week and talk about what we can actually do. Let's pray. Lord, I'm mindful when we have Thanksgiving weekend that it means a lot of things to a lot of people. Right now, we take a moment, Lord, just to thank you for all the things that are in our lives that we have reason to be thankful for. Lord, let's lift those up to you right now. Lord, I'm also mindful of all the excess in our lives, all the things that distract us from your desire for justice, your desire for other people, our duties to provide for those people, all the things that take our money and take our time and take our attention away from the task that you've given us to provide for our brothers and sisters. And we repent of that, Lord, in a holiday season that's made up of excess, on top of the excess of lives we already live. And Lord, in this holiday season, I also pray for those who are homeless, people who are hopeless, people who are hungry, people who are lonely, people who have no one to speak up for them, people who have been injured. Lord, these holidays bring out in us uh, some of the best things and also some of the more difficult things. May we be comfort to one another in this room first because we are brothers and sisters here as a family. May we be comfort to those outside of ourselves and look beyond ourselves to those who need shelter, clothing, food, just a conversation, even those that are uh, in our own lives, Lord that we often overlook. And Lord, may we find at least one way this season to strip away some of the excess and return it back to you in stewardship. Take away some of that distraction, take away some of that spending that we do, Lord, and put it in a place where it rightfully belongs, the way you asked us to care for one another. Thank you, Lord, for what we're about to learn. Thank you, Lord, for this group. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.